0: Syria gassed. Who's right? Who's wrong? And what next? Have the grown-ups taken over the cuckoo nest? South Sudan, why the sappers are fighting the biggest disaster in Africa. And the Lancers dance to Her Majesty's very own tune. And a front to humanity is how U.S. President Donald Trump described the killing of dozens of civilians in an apparent chemical weapon attack by Syrian forces. He didn't mention Russia, but America's envoy to the U.N. has accused Russia of covering up for Damascus. Turkey says the results of post mortems carried out on victims of the attack in northern Syria have confirmed chemical weapons were used. Well, the government of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad denies its forces launched a chemical weapons attack. Well, I'm joined by Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Dr Karen von Hippel, and BFPS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Karen von Hippel, the one question everyone wants to know the answer to, what's Trump going to do? Is it a no-fly zone? Will he bomb Damascus? Or will he tell Russia to keep out of the way while the US Air Force does its work?
1: Good question. Uh, No-fly no zone is very complicated because it would potentially require shooting down Russian planes if they came into that space. I'm not sure they're ready for that. Bombing Damascus may be the better option and bombing military facilities or just you know, making it hurt for him. Uh, telling Russia to keep out of the way, well, the Air Force does it work, doesn't doesn't work in this case because the U.S. is bombing ISIL and isn't necessarily bombing in the same areas that these these attacks are happening.
0: In this situation, what would you advise the American president to do?
1: I think actually a a military strike in this case, as opposed to other parts of the world where Trump has threatened action, whether it's Iran or North Korea, in Syria it makes more sense. It needs to be a targeted strike. It needs to aim at a place that would hurt Assad and and, and not have civilian casualties. But I think it's the right thing to do because he really just has done what he wanted for the last six plus years uh, with, with really no repercussions at all. They just deny they're involved in any of this. They've killed... Hundreds of thousands of civilians, I mean half a million have been killed so far and very few of those have been killed by ISIL. The vast majority have been killed by the regime.
0: Christopher Lee, why did Russia insist that it was a conventional bombing raid that hit rebel stockpiles of chemicals?
2: Uh, it's puzzled why they said that but they all say something like this and there's another side of this is if you look at the uh, look at two uh, bits of evidence which you're about to get one for example is the autopsy report which the Turks have already started to produce because some of the casualties were taken into Turkish hospitals to saying that they have every sign of uh, poison gas or nerve gas in this case but also chlorine chlorine uh, uh, attacks the second so there's that one Bit which says, no, the Russians are wrong with this. There's another side of it, too. If you look at the photographs, you will see a series of photographs and you have two plumes of black smoke and then white smoke. Now, the two plumes of black smoke are from conventional bombs because that's what happens, right? The white smoke is considered that's where there has been a chemical attack. And it's the chemical, the white smoke, which the Russians were saying, aha, now that's a bombing of that place. And that couldn't have been because you'd have had a third plume of black smoke when you hit you see what I'm, uh, I'm getting at so the whole thing didn't make any uh, didn't make any sense it also seemed that quite possibly quite possibly uh, nobody was giving the proper directions from moscow where mm. what do we say, what he was saying about and so that the the permanent representative of the united nations was yet again having to make a A a, a difficult statement, but you know, you're in a land where difficult statements sometimes are believed.
0: Karen, you're saying that perhaps a targeted strike by the US might be an option, but this really does put a strain or put a difficult situation between the Russians backing Assad and the Americans. Do, Do you really think that's a possibility?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I think more concerning is not necessarily about the U.S.-Russia relationship, but it does put the U.S. on a slippery slope to do more. You Normally, you can't just bomb once or twice and then walk away. You get much more involved in, in the situation. The Russians might stay out of the way. They should stay out of the way if the U.S. bomb, but it's possible they might shoot down an American plane and then, then you're in a, a very difficult situation.
0: Now, everybody saying President Assad, bar the Russians, of course, is being called a, a war criminal, but no country is going to attempt to arrest and cart him off to the International Criminal Court, at least not now, Christopher.
2: Uh, no, and when is the next International Criminal Court going to be able to see it anyway? No, that that is the truth of it. Now, if you want the the outsider's view of what you now do, if you were going to take a madman's look at it, you would say what you would do is go and hit the palace in Damascus. And then what you're aiming to do is to get people in Damascus, the people who are running the rest of the country on behalf or, or, or for the, for the, uh, for the pr- uh, president, to say, hey, Con, we, we've, gone, we've gone far enough. In other words, you're looking for a palace revolution. And in the long term, the most likely result of Syria is a palace Revolution.
0: Mm, you mentioned Paris re- resolution, revolution. Um, some changes to President Trump's security advisor, Steve mm-hmm. Bannon's been removed, and some commentators are saying this means the grown-ups are back in charge. Uh, Karen, what do you make of all of this? Yeah,
1: it's excellent. It, it, it's really good news, actually. McMaster is a, a real pro. He knows what he's doing, and uh, he's trying to professionalize and, and return the the security council. I mean, not security national security council to you know to the organization that where it functions better and he's been involved in it for years and you know he knows how to make things work he's a strategic thinker so it's all good news
2: that must have been one of the deals for him to actually take over from Flint, mustn't it?
1: I, I don't know, because I think it would have been hard for him to say that at the time. I suspect he quietly worked behind the scenes to make this happen. But there's mm-hmm. the,
2: other, the, the other lot. I mean, the people are on the... On the you, you know, you've got the chairman of the, uh, of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, yeah, they're General, back in. General, General Dofer he's back in. The yeah. intelligence chief, uh, Dan Coates, is back in. Uh, I mean, James um, uh, Majesty the Defence Minister, he's already there. But also Homeland. And yeah. important, I think, is, is uh, Gary Cohn who is the economics policy man on that committee he feels safer he feels better with him with with him on there and so you've got a reliable team you know they've got the cookiness back
1: mm. yeah i mean the the issue with with trump's leadership style is he's used to running a secretive family business he's and where he makes all the decisions and he
0: is he coming to terms then that he can't quite do it the
1: same <laughs> well it's just he's I, he's learning and but the learning is not good for the country because they're making so many mistakes there's so much backstabbing going on there's so many leaks going on that it's really even hard to say why bannon was removed because you get competing views coming from the white house itself and so i think it, you know with mcmaster and a few others trying to professionalize the place hopefully uh, american security policy will be a bit more predictable and a bit more sane going forward.
2: Hey, Karen, let's, let's just think of one other thing, of course. This doesn't mean that uh, Steve Bannon is out.
1: No, he's still there.
2: He's still there. He's still dining with the president. Mm. I mean, so whatever his views for the views that attracted uh, President Trump in the first place, or President Elect Trump uh, in in the first place, are still there. So,
0: uh, Karen, a big meeting today, of course, uh, President Trump with the Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, What do you think is going to come out of that? He is, notably and admittedly, a bit 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 worried about it. The president, isn't he? Yeah,
1: I mean, the good news about Trump is that he seems to the more he learns about something the more he comes around to the interpretation that many of us would like him to have about these issues and so uh, in a sense on north korea in particular i mean let's leave trade aside for now but on north korea in particular he may be able to put the right type of pressure on the chinese to really you know to really for the chinese to put pressure on north korea to make some important changes. How will he do that? Do you think he will, be, really? I, you know, I think this is the one time when Trump's unpredictability is a good thing, <laughs> because I think the Chinese just don't know what he might do. And so, you know, it's more likely to push them in the right direction than potentially someone like Obama would have because he was predictable and mm-hmm. they knew that he would only go so far.
2: It's interesting, this whole, the, the whole image still of Trump uh, all the way in now. Uh, when Trump says something we're trying to compare with what he said when he was trying to get elected and what he said maybe in just last week, and the Obama thing is, is, is one of those things. But we all expect him to do something. We all say, well, now what does that mean? Because there's, a, there's still this international sense of nervousness that he might just go and bomb... Damascus, Or he, when he says, well, if the Chinese don't some, do something about North Korea, <coughs> we will do something North Korea. Then somebody says, you, well, well, what does exactly you mean you're going to do? And, and, and then everybody sits around and says, well, there's actually nothing much you can do. And you go back and say, well, perhaps ba- Obama got it right after all.
0: Karen, do you think that unpredictability that you, you mentioned being perhaps an asset in this situation might actually keep people like Kim Jong-un, North Korea, in check?
1: I think Kim Jong-un is even more unpredictable so it's really to get the Chinese on board uh, nobody wants the Americans to bomb North Korea the South, and the North Koreans could end up you know, doing significant damage in Seoul and, and you know, millions could be killed or at least hundreds of thousands if they do, if they send uh, rockets etc in so you know, everyone wants restraint but in order to get restraint then they need to get back to the diplomatic negotiating table and at the moment that's not happening and the Chinese may be the only, the only country that can push the North Koreans back.
2: Do you know I heard in the Foreign Office the other day uh, a guy talking about North Korea and he said the only thing is likely to set it in a diff- different direction is unimaginable and that is a meeting between King jong un and mr trump
0: no that's the thought isn't it <laughs> and if you
2: bring those to, if you could do that what the north koreans would get is the thing that he's always wanted
1: a seat at the table
2: respect mm.
1: beyond rodman dennis rodman huh? yeah <laughs> there we'll leave it for the
0: moment dr karen von hippel director general of the royal united services institute thanks for joining us today now soldiers from the third battalion the rifles have been helping train the Kuwaiti forces against a terrorist threat it's the first time in 15 years that british troops have conducted joint training in kuwait ali gibson reports from exercise desert warrior Push forward!
3: Push forward! in the heart of the desert British and Kuwaiti troops approach. Their mission, to rescue a village from a group acting as Islamic State. Kuwait shares a border with Iraq. Terrorism is a tangible threat here. Major Alex Price is the officer commanding A Company 3 Rifles.
2: It's urban-focused, so clearing Daesh, ISIL out of an urban area. So, So that's really what we've been focusing on for the Kuwaitis. They are focused on some sort of threat to the north.
3: Three rifles, part of 51 Brigade, have spent the last few weeks on exercise Desert Warrior, training alongside the Kuwait National Guard and two 6 Brigade Kuwait Land Forces, the most northern troops in the country.
4: <laughs>
3: Captain Ahmad Al Inazi is from Al saw Brigade, they're known as the Wall.
1: Your guys, they had lots of battles in Iraq, Afghanistan, so this training uh, give us skills, uh, give us knowledge to facing any dangerous that attack uh, Kuwait, for example, and we are ready to uh, defence our country.
3: The joint training package is part of the Kuwait land delivery plan. The chief of the defence staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stuart Peach, hopes it will help arm the Kuwaitis against extremism.
5: Well, we're sending a signal that we're stronger together, we're sending a signal to the region that the British forces are firm friends and not fair-weather friends and that we can come to our friends at times when they want us to as well as times when we want to. So it's very much a mutual decision. We're listening to what our Kuwaiti friends want.
3: British troops have protected the desert for a long time. Mubarak the Great made an alliance with Britain at the turn of the 20th century. The Kuwaitis gave their support through two world wars and in turn the UK offered protection, most notably when Saddam Hussein invaded in 1990. Brigadier Piers Hankinson served during that time and before the 2003 invasion of Iraq.
2: People in the Gulf realise the importance of alliances, of old friendships, and this is where the UK and Kuwait have something very deep and the Kuwaitis have a huge empathy and wish to do more with the UK.
3: Prime Minister Theresa May recently declared that Gulf security is our security, and this exercise is a sign that Kuwait is central to that policy—a partner, a strategic ally, and a friend. Thank you, Ali Gibson for
0: BFBS in Kuwait. Uh, Christopher, Ali stressing there the importance of our allies in the Gulf, something not lost on the Prime Minister as she visited the region this week.
2: No, that's right. I mean, if you. I find it fascinating what the Saudis were saying to her. She went to, went to uh, Saudi Arabia with all the critics saying, listen, the Saudis are... A, 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 this was
0: after Jordan, wasn't it? Yeah, so Jordan and, first, then Saudi Arabia.
2: Yeah, and, 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 and people said, look, really, watch the Saudi Arabians. You ought to tell them they ought to get their human rights record straightened up before we do business with them. Well, you know, that's an absolute sort of rubbish, rubbishy thing. What the Saudis were saying to her was that, the, that if you look now... The people who are winning all the wars that are going on around are the Iranians. Start thinking, when you get back to London, they were saying this, get back to London, get somebody in from the Foreign Office and give you a briefing on Iran. I- Iran, apart from Tehran itself, they now control what goes on in Baghdad and in Damascus and in Beirut and in Sana in, in, in southern Yemen. And these are the people that matter now. And she's coming away with this idea, from again from the Saudis, Nobody wins a modern war, and if you start holding that, so when... the
0: idea is that containment is all you can expect.
2: Containment, all, all expect. I mean, somebody was even getting quite heavy with it and saying, you know, if you think about it, it's like the Thirty Years' War dragged everybody into it mm. uh, uh, with with no con- con- conclusions, and that's what she's come back quite thoughtful about. What is it that we do with war now? how deeply when we ask the question are you going to get involved and all these questions are the ones that are facing donald trump
0: sit rep. still to come is it getting easier to make a complaint about bullying and harassment in the forces and all the queen's soldiers why the royal lancers now belong to elizabeth
3: BFBS, sit rep.
0: Royal engineers are working to build a field hospital in famine-hit South Sudan. They've deployed as part of the United Nations mission in the country. Armed Forces Minister Mike Penning has been to see the work for himself. He's spoken to our producer, Gisela Waldron.
5: Firstly, I promised when we had a request from the deployment of the United Nations to send royal engineers and uh, a medical unit here to South Sudan to protect um, and help in the humanitarian um, situation we have here, so it was a formal request from them, so I promised them if I did deploy them, I would come and see them um, it 's my my job that i I send them, so I thought it was really important to do that. so the Royal engineers are doing fantastic work in preparing the areas in, in one part of South Sudan for a new field hospital, which we will be bring bringing out from the u k with the, the medics and everything for that. There are also, um, I believe or not, remember the RAF that's here. We've got the rifles here. And then the engineers are doing fantastic work, not least in one of the things they're doing is building the new jetty so we can bring more food and everything up into the area where people are literally starving um, yeah. uh, um, on, on barges. And at the same time, hopefully we can start very soon if the United Nations bring the pipes up on a two-kilometre-long two pipe fee for, so if we can get fresh water into pur- well, purification plants from the Nile. So it'll be two, two uh, kilometers of pipe that the engineers are putting in, so doing a, a fantastic job in an unbelievably horrible climate in a, an area of the world which sadly, as you know, is in a really difficult situation, not only with a famine but also with the fighting.
3: Are all 400 of this deployment expected there at the same time or is it being staggered?
5: No, we've staggered the deployment not least because it's no point sending the field hospital unit out until the likelihood is going to be ready for them. So the medics are being held back. The, there are some engineers that are still due to come as well, but the, uh, and some of the rifles are still coming as well. But we have a significant deployment uh, in South Sudan with particularly the Royal Engineers. The, the medical uh, hospital uh, CO has just arrived, um, and we have the advanced parties on that. So we'll stagger it through. We that's have, have the accommodation built for them to actually live in when they get here. We have to make sure that the force protection is there for them, and and also the force protection is right for them, which has been provided by the UN as well as our own forces.
3: Who of our own forces are doing force protection there?
5: Well, every soldier is part of the British Army, so that's part of their job, so so that's there. But we have the rifles here, um, two rifles, and then, of course, we have combat engineers as well. So I'm very happy having visited them that the force protection is good, and they are very, very supportive of the UN troops that are looking after them, Uh, from all over the world, particularly, interestingly, in Mongolia. The Mongolian troops are, as described to my my squad, is absolutely rock hard, so they are solid, they are really very good. And we've had huge support, interestingly, from the Indian medical services as we're waiting for our own medical services to arrive, and they've been very supportive, not least because we haven't had our field kitchens up and running yet in parts of uh, the deployment, and so the the Indians have have been very helpful with the food as well.
3: And is South Sudan happy with the deployment?
5: Well, uh didn't request us to come. They are happy that the UN are there. The Sassanese government is a very fractious organisation and it's a very, very dangerous part of the, of, of the world. But the request for us to be here is from the United Nations. Our troops are obviously under our own local command, which are British officers, but at the same time we're under the command of the United Nations. and so the request is a UN commitment, probably the second largest commitment that we've given to the UN in personnel in the last 20 years are really significant for us at the same time as, of course, as while we're deploying extensively with NATO.
0: That was the Armed Forces Minister, Mike Penning, speaking from South Sudan. Chris, have you mentioned there about the number of NATO commitments Britain has at the moment on top of that UN deployment? A busy time for our armed forces. It
2: is. I mean, the British forces, people don't often understand it, are in about 22, 23 different countries doing bits and pieces if you like, like this, and into this is danger. i tell you what's quite good about it. I'm quite keen about Mike Penning is uh, running this. I mean, he's number two in the defence ministry. Armed forces, he's out there, he's having a look. Mike Penning, I remember... He's ex
0: forces isn't he, himself? So.
2: Grenadier. Hmm. He was, uh, he was a, a junior NCO in the Grenadiers. Was never substantiated because he said they thought he was a bit too bolshy. Uh He then became a fireman. But what he is, um, he found the army quite boring. And that's another thing. Every time he goes to see an army uh, unit, he says, are you bored? <laughs> Because if so, something's wrong, and that was his. He is a hands-on minister, and the army, certainly, or the forces haven't. Good for defence, then you think? Well, haven't had that sort of hands-on minister where he looks and sees something's wrong and goes back to the MOD and says, "Why is that wrong?" Mm -hmm. And answers on the table by Friday. And answers have to be on the table by Friday. I think when you see a a difficult operation like this, which is going to grow and it is combined with other organisations, African units as well, and Indian uh, units, I think he will not forget it. It's not just a duty visit. And that's what's needed, and that's what's needed in almost more than 20 operations that the British forces uh, are engaged in at the moment.
0: Now, a game changer. That's how the newly appointed service complaints ombudsman described the new powers that came with her job when she started at the beginning of 2016. At the time, Nicola Williams, she said she would use them to combat bullying, harassment and the code of silence that stops servicemen and women from making complaints. Well, this week, on publishing her first annual report as ombudsman, she told me it was too early to say whether the new system is more efficient, effective and
4: fair. When I was in private practice as a barrister, I would never take an unfair point, and I think it would be unfair to compare this this system for 2016 to what had existed hitherto, because a lot of the old... Cases from the old complaints process have trickled into the new process. So we're not looking at discrete figures for new complaints that were generated on or after the 1st first of, first of January 2016. I've held, I've reserved judgment for this year, but for this year only. You can rest assured, and I'd like to reassure all your listeners about this, that next year when we do our annual report, I will be I will be very robust if I believe that the system is not working efficiently, effectively or fairly. I'll be very robust in saying so and where I believe the fault lies. And do you think there's more confidence in the system now? Well... Judging from the people that, uh, there's two ways to answer that. Judging from the numbers of people that contact our office, I do believe that people have a great deal of trust and confidence in our office. I, In terms of the internal process, whether that reflects that, I believe they're a half-step behind, so I don't believe they, they are where we are in terms of internal trust and confidence. H- how's that, then, half-step behind? Just in well, terms of confidence? or? Well, I, I think in, in, in terms of confidence, we do have a number of people, for example, who come to our office because they have lost faith in their chain of command. Whether or not that's a legitimate thing for them to believe, it it doesn't matter because that's what they believe. Uh, And so they come to our office for us to deal with the matter uh, and for us to refer it back to the services if necessary. Uh, But overall, I would like to say that I do believe that the new system has encouraged people to have confidence, not just in our office, but in the internal complaints process itself for each of the services. You were given the ranking of general for this job. How has that helped if it has? Well, I have a, a three-star designation, and I do believe it, it does help because, uh, speaking bluntly, if, if as I have the power to do, if I'm going to be setting aside a decision or overturning a decision of an appeal board for the army, for example, and that board has uh, a lieutenant general on it, a brigadier on it, or people of very senior rank, then it helps to have a senior rank for myself. So I think that's certainly... Um, that certainly has helped within the services. I would have carried out my powers irrespective of whether or not I had that rank designation, but I think it shows the importance of the office and the significance of the role of ombudsman and the important way in which the MOD view that role.
0: And are you where you'd hoped you'd be just over 12 months, more than 12
4: months ago? Well, yes I am, because this this is the first year on for me a five year journey. And for the first year, I think when I look back at the work that, that I have done and particularly the work that my staff have done in order to uh, generate the, the very positive uh, reports that we have given in our annual report, yes, there's more to do, absolutely, uh, particularly around the issues of delay, around the issues of overrepresentation of women and BAME personnel with regards to this complaints. is the ethnic minorities absolutely yes uh, black and black Asian and minority ethnic personnel in, with regards to complaints uh, and also the getting the word out about our organization still there's still many junior ranks that don't know sufficiently about our organization and that is something for the services themselves to tackle There are still challenges ahead, but I think for the first year, I think I and my office have done work about which we can be justly proud. That was the
0: service complaints, Ombudsman Nicola Williams. So, Christopher, a British Army regiments had a name change. Uh, The Royal Lancers have been renamed by the Queen in tribute to their service to the royal family. They're now called the Royal Lancers, Queen Elizabeth's Own. What's in a name?
2: Well, it's in an apostrophe as well, isn't it? It's the, the the Queen's. It's
0: after it, the S.
2: It is after the S. Therefore, there are two Elizabeths. What we're talking about is the, is the late Queen Mother, and, and the Queen. They are their own regiments. It brings them closer in the protocol of, of, of regimental history. Um, the Lancers. Are, I mean, they've only just really... I think it was, it was only two years ago that they actually amalgamated and you had the 9th, 12th uh, uh, amalgamated with the... Queen's uh, Royal Lancers. Well, also the Prince of Waleses. The 9th, 12th Royals were the Prince of Waleses. I wonder if the Prince, the dear old Prince of Wales... Well, he's not old, actually, but Prince, <laughs> the, the Prince of Wales has actually just lost his own personal regiment by the mm, sound of
0: it. A bit of, of infighting in the family, do it, you reckon?
2: It, it does. It is toy soldiers at dawn. I can... But i, can, I can tell. Now, rank. I do, there's another side of this... And that is that we live in a society now which cannot afford or doesn't want to pay for all the um, all the regiments by their names and by their battle honours that, that, that go back two or three hundred years. And it is a time also when names are disappearing.
0: Mm. So it's bestowing a kind of legacy on it, do you it, think, as the Amalgamated Red?
2: It's sort of. It's giving it something. It is, it is a reminder that if you disappear, for example, into something and anybody just calls the Rifles or the, or Five Scots or something like that, that you do go on. And people are very who serve, in, in, in the army especially, they're very aware of that they are the Queen's, do
0: you think Queen's that, army. Do you think that the name change will make a big difference to those that serve in the Royal Lancers, Queen Elizabeth's own?
2: No, but I mean, they'll certainly get the silver out and, and, and celebrate quite a lot because the, the Lancers, who are great party givers anyway, they, they they will look upon this as being rather important. It is closer, closer to the sovereign. And when you talk about... She, the, course talk she said to a, force,
0: a force without match, didn't she, about this?
2: Yes, all sovereigns have loved the Lancers. And when you go back uh, in, 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 their, in their history, I mean, this is the, the royalty goes back in the history, you start going back to, for example, um, uh, the Crimea War, 1854, and you go back to, you know, into the Valley of Death rode the 600 I mean that was an absolute cock up actually but nevertheless this is how people people react and their their military history their history nights their military nights are very important and to be closer by this name the queen queen elizabeth how, it, it
0: how is it decided is, is it the queen that decides that she wants to change the name
2: i think there is i think there's a bit, there's there's something else here um uh, somebody may suggest that it would be nice to do something now with the regiment. Uh, it would be something rather important. The Queen doesn't get up in the morning and say, "Listen, mm, we before get, breakfast." Well, yeah, before <laughs> breakfast. I must have a word with uh, must have a the private secretary to get the the lancers in. For, could you for suggest, a chat about um, this.
0: Could you perhaps suggest any other name changes that might be ripe?
2: Well, I do, I do, actually. It's in Navy, the Navy. Uh, it, somebody pointed out the other day that the Navy, yet again, they say, the Navy's got more admirals than ships. And I think we ought to sort of have the uh, all the admirals joined together as one. And called and they, what? And they could be Queen Elizabeth's own admirals, or something like that. And show <laughs> what a, a, a Gilbert and Sullivan effort it's all becoming.
0: Any admirals out, like, out there we'd like to hear from you. That is all we have time for today. And my thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at bfbs sit rep and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS Sit Rep. So, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon. Bye bye for now.
2: the best of british news sport and entertainment
3: for
1: the british forces overseas this
2: is bfbs radio 2